We would like to welcome you to another edition of The Jazz Show on CITR FM 101.9 or, of course, on your computer, www.citr.ca. My name's Gavin Walker, and we have some of the very best jazz music from now until well after the witching hour of midnight. And we always begin our show with the jazz feature album. But we have lots to play for you this evening, uh, different styles of music and all this kind of stuff. But our jazz feature album is something rather special. Some people have called this because of the title track, which opens the album as a mood jazz album. Well, that's kind of a a funny term because that can sort of imply that the music is kind of bland, background music kind of thing, and uh, not all that important. Well, now, this is not really... That, that, that name, mood jazz, doesn't really go well with this, but the, the first piece of music on this particular recording is a mood piece. And it's only because of the feel that the musicians got in the recording studio. It wasn't meant to go on for 15 minutes, but the producer of this particular date, Alfred Lyon, uh, actually was motioning to the musicians to keep going, keep playing during the, uh, the one and only take of this because he knew... He had something very special, and uh, so he was watching all the soloists, and they would occasionally look up in the c- control booth, and he kept, he signaled to them, keep playing, keep playing, don't stop, keep it happening. <laughs> so the album I'm talking about is by guitarist Grant Green. Now, Grant recorded prolifically for the Blue Note label, Back in uh, the early 60s, he was the label's uh, chief guitarist. And Grant, along with Wes Montgomery, were really two of the most prominent guitarists to emerge in the 60s. Uh, Some people might say, well, what about Jim Hall, Kenny Burrell, or George Benson, or, or Pat Martino? Well, Hall and Burrell, and Barney Kessel, too, um, they were around a lot, <laughs> quite a bit longer um, than uh, uh, Wes Montgomery and Grant Green uh, because they were prominent in the 50s. And, of course, it was later on in the mid-60s that George Benson um, began turning heads and ears and also Pat Martino. So, but Green and Montgomery were the two newcomers on the scene and they're very different people. Uh, Wes Montgomery, of course, uh, had that magic touch uh, on guitar, used his thumb and no pick, and played um, a combination of single lines and and chords, and of course uh, created a magnificent style. And Wes Montgomery was Wes Montgomery, and even when he made more commercial records, uh, they were extremely successful. And the sad part about Wes is that he died in 1968 at age 45 and really didn't benefit um, from his uh, commercial success. And um, it was too bad he died of a heart attack. And Wes was a straight shooter as well. He he was a um, 
he drank very little alcohol and uh, no drugs, that sort of thing. He was a straight-up guy, and he was a family man as well. Um, Grant Green was a little different. He was younger than Wes, and uh, Grant also um, made attempts after his Blue Note days to um, do more commercial music, and it didn't work for Grant at all. Um, and uh, unfortunately, he needed <laughs> he needed money because Grant uh, was hogtied by a heavy drug addiction, which kind of plagiarized and uh, and blighted his uh, his career in many ways. And Grant died in 1979, January 31st, at age 43. But they both made their marks, um, especially their early recordings. Wes Montgomery on Riverside Records and Grant Green on Blue Note Records. And the owner of Blue Note, the aforementioned Alfred Lyon, loved Grant Green, of course. And, and, and he knew that Grant always needed money. And, and, but Grant was, had this amazing talent. And, uh, of course, he made records, lots of them for Alfred Lyon. Many, many, many were not released until Grant's death um, because uh, Alfred didn't want to flood the market with Grant Green recordings. He just couldn't do it. It was economically not feasible. But this particular recording was rather special. And the musical director here was a pianist by the name of Duke Pearson. And uh, Duke was a very, very well-respected musician. He went on to, to produce uh, later on in the 60s uh, for Blue Note Records and lead a big band and, and made all kinds of wonderful recordings. And he kind of took control of this uh, session because the title track that I'm talking about uh, of this album called Idle Moments was written by Duke Pearson, and Duke wrote another composition for this particular band. And uh, he had a lot to say. And it's a beautiful band. Grant Green picked all the musicians, including Duke. And uh, we have Joe Henderson, one of the major voices of the tenor saxophone, who was just emerging. Um, and Bobby Hutcherson had just arrived in New York, and, of course, he became one of the most influential exponents of the vibes, and Duke Pearson, as I mentioned, on piano, Bob Crenshaw on bass, had established himself as one of the leading bass players, and a very wonderful drummer who was one of the many fine drummers on the New York scene in those days, Al Harewood Her on drums, and Al Harewood was always a very tasty, um, wonderful drummer, never got in the way but you knew he was there. So those are the people involved on this um, recording date. It was done in November of 1963, and the album came out as Idle Moments. And it's interesting, too, because of the programming of the album. Usually, um, Alfred Lyon would program the first tune to be some sort of a catchy, funky, bluesy number that would that would get people's attention, and then, of course, the the rest of the album would be um, really more intense stuff. But this time, he put the 
um, the title track as the first, the opening track on the album, and it sets a beautiful mood. Um, and, of course, uh, it's very contemplative and very relaxed, and it's the perfect title, uh, Idle Moments. And then we go to the uh, second tune of the album, which is a Duke Pearson composition called Nomad, and that, of course, picks up the pace um, quite a bit. And then there's another wonderful Grant Green composition following Nomad uh, called Jean de Fleur. And we're going to hear the, uh, the longer alternate version of that tune because it's just as good as the originally released version. And the final tune is a wonderful rendition of John Lewis's classic that was dedicated to the late guitarist Django Reinhardt. And, of course, we're going to hear uh, a wonderful version of Django. And once again, that's an alternate version, too, which is a little longer and I think just as good as the released version. So a very special edition of this album. And I hope you enjoy, I hope you enjoy Idle Moments. And uh, also... Um, The, the feel of the music on this album is something very special. So once again, the personnel. Joe Henderson, tenor saxophone, Bobby Hutcherson on vibes. The leader, Grant Green on guitar. Duke Pearson on piano, Bob Crenshaw on bass, and Al Harewood on drums. And we begin with Idle Moments.
our jazz feature album by a guitarist, Grant Green. Idle Moments is the name of the album, and the people involved here, Joe Anderson on tenor saxophone, Bobby Hutcherson on vibes, Grant Green, of course, the leader on guitar, Duke Pearson on piano, who wrote uh, two of the tunes on here and was kind of the musical director of this recording session, Bob Cranshaw on bass and Al Harewood on drums. And all of this was recorded in November of 1963 for Blue Note Records. And it uh, is a little bit different from a lot of Grant Green albums, and it's kind of special. And it should be heard more often because it's a very very beautiful album, and it has some very um, contemplative and, and quieter moments on here as well. And especially for people that um, sometimes feel that jazz music is too busy or frantic and that sort of thing, this is kind of a perfect album to, to play and uh, say, well, see, you know, uh, jazz can be nice, slowed down, and... Um, uh, all that kind of stuff, and yet not uh, not sound bland or, or stuff that you play in the background. Um, it's still very, very valid music, and uh, I believe sincerely that this album is one of Grant's uh, better recordings. He did many for Blue Note Records in the early part of his career, and this was one of them. So, the people involved, uh, as I mentioned, um, the first piece of music was chosen to open the album um, by producer Alfred Lyon. And normally, most Blue Note albums would have opened with a, a, a bouncy, funky kind of a piece, um, but not this album. And uh, the, uh, the first track is the title track, and uh, it's a lazy, kind of languorous piece of music that uh, really hits the sweet spot. And, of course, that's Duke Pearson's composition, Idle Moments. And we followed that with another uh, Pearson item, uh, which is, was a little more uh, up-tempo and exciting, uh, a piece of music called Nomad. And then we moved to a Grant Green composition called Jean de Fleur, and we heard the um, alternate take of that, not the uh, issued take. The alternate take is just as good, if not better. Uh, Sometimes that happened. And uh, the final piece of music, of course, um, back to contemplation once again, uh, John Lewis's uh, timeless composition dedicated to the great Django Reinhardt called Simply Django and played with uh, loving respect by the band. And again, we heard the, uh, the more lengthy alternate version of Django. So these four tracks basically made up the contents of the album Idle Moments, issued on Blue Note Records and, uh, as I mentioned before, one of Grant Green's finer recordings for that label. You are listening to The Jazz Show. We just finished the jazz feature. And my name's Gavin Walker. And, you're, and of course, we're broadcasting on radio station CITR, which is located 101.9 on your dial. 
As if you didn't know that, because if you're listening, you know that, right? But anyway, also live streaming on the web, um, citr.ca. And we do this every Monday night, some of the finest in jazz music. We'll be right back after uh, a couple of messages, important ones too. We shall return. Am I wrong? Man, they Am were I? nihilists, man. Huh? They kept saying they believed in nothing. Nihilists. The Greatest Date from Nihilism, Rediscovering Our Passion in Late Modernity by Dr. Gordon E. Karkner involves a journey out of the prison of contemporary nihilism and into a meaningful life trajectory. Rooted in the work of Canadian premier philosopher Charles Taylor, this book is a relevant read for students and faculty. You can find it at the UBC or Regent bookstores. Who's the f***ing nihilist around here, you bunch of f***ing crybabies? Without the help and support of our friends, we here at CITR wouldn't be able to bring you all the great music, art, cinema, and culture that you love. Thanks to the long-standing support from the Rio Theatre, we are able to keep you informed on all the great artists, films, and everything else coming to town there. For all the current information about who and what's playing at the Rio Theatre, visit their website at www.riotheatre.ca. up those eyeballs. Your dose of 24 consecutive hours of essential cinema returns to the Cinematheque this spring. Join us for the 24-hour movie marathon, March 30th to 31st, 10 a.m. to 10 a.m. It's the Sleep Be Damned Challenge that only the most seasoned cinephiles dare to tussle with. A super secret lineup of films will be served. A medley of forgotten gems and art house hits from around the world. There will be prizes, complimentary craft beer, tasty treats, and much more. This event is 19+. plus. Tickets are $60, and seating is very limited. Reserve your ticket today by visiting thecinematech.ca. We saw a little rain this evening, and uh, that's what's going to be happening. Cloudy with a 30% chance of a shower, then more intense rain um, later on uh, throughout the night with a low of 7 degrees. And then tomorrow, showers uh, with a low of 7 and a high of 11. And then a nice break for Wednesday. It's warming up significantly. And it'll be sunny on Wednesday with a low of 4 and a high of 17. <coughs> Pardon me. Uh, then on Thursday, a mix of sun and cloud with a low of 7 and a high of 15. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, all the same forecast. A mix of sun and cloud, lows between 6 and 8, 
and highs between 14 and 15. So quite pleasant, no precipitation in the forecast, and that mix of sun and cloud, that can, that can be very pleasant this time of year. So um, pretty benevolent forecast for the end of March. March uh, was in, comes in like a lion and goes out like a lamb. You know, that old cliche. Anyway, uh, that's it for the weather forecast. You're listening to CITR 101.9, broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional, unceded, Coast Salish territory of the Hunkaminam-speaking Musqueam people. Pardon my uh, infrequent coughing there. That's uh, usually something I try to disguise when I'm going to do that. Anyway, <laughs> regardless, we're back to music. And this time we're going to take you to Bremen in Germany on a Thursday evening, April 16, 1964. And one of the most incredible bands, the Charles Mingus ever assembled, and this particular band uh, recorded prolifically while they were over in Europe. Um, It featured, unfortunately, uh, one member uh, took ill on the tour, and one of my very favorite trumpet players, Johnny Coles, uh, took ill, I I believe it was the following evening, and uh, he had to be rushed to hospital in Paris. They were playing in... uh, opening in Paris on April 17th, and um, Coles uh, played one tune and had to be rushed to hospital. He had burst a peptic ulcer and almost died, but the, uh, the French doctors uh, saved him, and of course that was the end of his uh, uh, tenure in this band. Uh, he was uh, shipped back home for uh, uh, a recovery, and of course he did recover, but uh, it was very, very serious. But uh, Johnny Coles is here with the group. Um, there's, of course, Charles Mingus is on bass, and Danny Richmond, his uh, n- number one partner, is on drums. And we have Jackie Byard on piano, who uh, Mingus uh, held in the highest esteem. And uh, Clifford Jordan on tenor saxophone, the great uh, voice of the tenor saxophone from Chicago. And, of course, the incredible Eric Dolphy, who played uh, alto saxophone, flute, and bass clarinet, multi-instrumentalist. And, of course, uh, Mingus loved Eric Dolphy, and and, uh, Eric had expressed to Mingus after the tour was over that he was going to remain in Europe. And, um, of course, sadly, Eric um, passed away a few months later, from diabetes and uh, the undiagnosed uh, diabetes, and sad to say, died in a hospital in German, in Germany, and uh, we lost one of the great uh, musicians of the 20th century, Eric Dolphy. Anyway, he's in fine form on this piece of music. This is a classic version of uh, a piece of music that Mingus um, often played for 
many audiences. It was part of the band's repertoire. And I'm sure you've heard different versions of this tune. Uh, but this particular version is, uh, wow, powerhouse. And it, and it goes on uh, for a long time. And Mingus takes this tune in many, many different directions. So here then is the fabled Charles Mingus Jazz Workshop with Eric Dolphy, Johnny Coles, Clifford Jordan, Jackie Byer, Danny Richmond, and Mr. Mingus. And we're going to listen to the fables of Faubus. Thank you. 
The music of Charles Mingus, recorded in concert in Bremen, in Germany, Thursday evening, April 16th, 1964. And this incredible band that uh, Mingus had put together, of course, Charles Mingus on bass, and we heard Johnny Coles on trumpet, and Jackie Byard on piano, Clifford Jordan on tenor saxophone, and the incredible Eric Dolphy featured on this piece mostly on bass clarinet, otherworldly sound that he got from that instrument, and Danny Richmond on drums. And, of course, uh, one of Mingus's most famous pieces, uh, Diatribe Against Racism and Hatred, um, in the United States, and uh, one of the representatives of that was the governor of Arkansas, Governor Orville Faubus, and um, his history you can find on the web, um, pretty grim and sad, and Mingus wrote this as a diatribe to um, racism and hatred and all that kind of stuff, and of course called it Fables of Faubus. And this was uh, definitely an extended version. Uh, Mingus and the band took this piece of music in every which way, every direction you could imagine. And um, even though the recording quality was not, uh, um, they re this recording was not professionally recorded, but the sound quality wasn't too bad. And uh, everything could be heard fairly distinctly uh, on this uh, album. The Complete Bremen Concert, Charles Mingus. And of course, Eric Dolphy had given his notice. He was about, to, he was going to leave the band after the tour was over at the end of April. And um, Mingus wasn't happy about it, of course. But Eric wanted to settle in Europe and bring his girlfriend over and marry her over there. And sad to say, um, the happiness didn't last too long because then Eric um, died at age 36 and in Germany. He was taken, um, he had collapsed and he was taken to hospital and with uh, undiagnosed diabetes. And um, the doctors couldn't save him, sadly. Lots of controversy over Eric's death. And nobody was more hurt and upset about that than uh, Charles Mingus himself because he he thought of uh, Eric as uh, as a son really and uh, that was uh, traumatic for Mingus anyway that uh, incredible music hope you uh, enjoyed uh, all of it or parts of it and uh, it was in a you can imagine being there and experiencing that music live. Mm -hmm. You are listening to The Jazz Show on CITR-FM 101.9 or, of course, on your computer, www.citr.ca. And we shall return momentarily after these messages with some more music. A tribute to someone who lived here in Vancouver was a huge part of uh, the Vancouver music scene, and uh, he was a friend. And I was honored because he considered me 
his friend as well. And we had a, a few wonderful musical moments together. And um, I'll tell you more about it. I'm talking about Linton Garner. And we're going to hear a rare recording by Linton, uh, some tunes on from this recording. It was done actually long before he moved to Montreal and then came out to Vancouver. Uh, he was still in New York when he made this recording. And we're going to hear some of that. It's uh, fairly obscure and a small tribute to Linton Garner because it's his birthday anniversary today. Do you want to know more about human rights abuses, global issues, and international politics? Are you interested in writing to foreign and local governments in response to global crises? Are you ready to give peace a chance? If your answer is yes, then Amnesty International UBC may be the club for you. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash AIUBC or send us an email at amnestyubc at gmail.com. It's Cynthia from The Bike Kitchen. We moved, but we are still nearby. The Bike Kitchen is now located on East Mall in the trailer between Irving K. Barber and Brock Hall. Come down and check out our selection of used bikes, work on your bike with our tools, or get a tune-up by one of our pro mechanics. We have a one- or two-day turnaround on all tune-ups. Check out our website, thebikekitchen.com, for more information about our services and prices. You're listening to CITR 101.9 broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional, unceded, Coast Salish territory of the Hunkaminam-speaking Musqueam people. All right, uh, I'd like to remind you of course, as I usually do about a couple of important websites. One of them is the website of the Coastal Jazz and Blues Society. That, of course, is coastaljazz.ca. And uh, that's a very comprehensive website, and they have uh, the schedule of uh, Frankie's Jazz Club up there. Uh, you can book uh, tables. You can see which artists are coming and who you want to hear and make reservations and all that kind of stuff. And, of course, they have the, their own concerts that are up and coming that uh, are produced by Coastal Jazz and Blues throughout the year. And, of course, the big jazz festival every summer. And uh, the, the folks at uh, Coastal Jazz never rest. They, they work all year round and try and bring you some of the very best music that you can possibly hear. So... Um, their website, once again, is coastaljazz.ca. And the other fine website that I always mention is vancouverjazz.com, and that's a very comprehensive website as well. Lots of information on there, and uh, lots of things to do, discover if you haven't checked out that website. So coastaljazz.ca and vancouverjazz. Dot com. The music of Linton Garner. Now, as I mentioned before, Linton uh, lived in Montreal for a number of years. He moved there in the mid-60s and was part of the, uh, the Montreal jazz scene. 
and uh, he was always working because Linton was a, a, a responsible um, fellow, always showed up ready to play, showed up on time, um, all this kind of stuff. I remember one time we were we, we were chatting and he and um, uh, he said, uh, you know. Um, he was telling me some of the musicians that he played with because Linton played with everybody. Charlie Parker, he, 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 he played with Bird, he played with Dizzy Gillespie. He was in Dizzy Gillespie's big band, of course, and wrote arrangements for them. Um, he was in Dizzy Gillespie's uh, or uh, Billy Eckstein's uh, legendary band as well. And, of course, he, you know, he played with literally everybody, Miles Davis, uh, Gene Ammons, uh, Sonny Rollins, uh, you name it. And uh, one time Linton was, uh, we were talking, and I said, man, I said, it's unbelievable the people that you have played with and, and worked with. And he said, well, he said, I, Linton was one of these very mild-mannered men, uh, very smart, uh, and he always had a little glint in his eye. And he kind of looked at me with that little grin that he, he always had, and he said, well, you know why? that I, I, I played with all these guys. And I said, well, because you're Linton Garner. He said, nothing to do with that. He said, I'm nothing really special at the piano. But he said, I'll tell you what, I show up on time and ready to play the gig. And some of the other very famous piano players who are 200 times better than me Sometimes they don't show up on time, or they're late, or they show up maybe not in great shape to play. He said, that's, that's my ticket. <laughs> I thought that was, uh, I laughed when he said that. And of course, Linton was an extremely talented piano player and had, had um, um, he didn't necessarily have to have that kind of mildly deprecating attitude about his own talents because they were major. Linton was the older brother of Errol Garner, who was, of course, a, a, a piano genius. And uh, Linton said when he was growing up with Errol, um, he was the older brother, of course, and, and he had the lessons. And uh, Errol would, uh, would just sit and listen, and uh, the piano teacher would leave, and Linton would uh, play the lessons that he was taught on the piano, and then Errol would get up, um, and play the same thing, repeat everything. Uh, and uh, Earl actually was became very, very famous. He knew, Earl never learned to read music or, or know one note from another. He played entirely by ear. Linton was an extremely well-educated musician and uh, was also familiar with brass instruments as well because he worked as a, as a trumpet player and uh, in various bands. But uh, dental problems forced him to... Uh, um, emphasize his talents on the piano. But when Linton moved to Vancouver, he got a, a steady gig at the Four Seasons Hotel. And, of course, he was able to play. This supported uh, uh, little jazz gigs that he was able to play. And, uh, of course, uh, he played at places like the Classical Joint and so on and so forth. And uh, I remember feeling very privileged that I was asked to uh, join Linton and um, Wyatt Ruther, a wonderful bass player who lived here, and um, a very, very fine drummer from the Caribbean named Liston Pickering. And uh, they asked me to join them 
uh, at the classical joint for a gig on a Sunday night, which was always a very busy night down there. And, and uh, I felt like a king when, uh, when these guys asked me to, to, uh, to join them and play, and it was so much fun. But uh, Linton and I made some music over the years, and of course he, he made music with a lot of people. And of course he became, later on after the Four Seasons gig um, uh, ended, uh, he was hired by Arnie May, who ran the very famous Rossini's down at U uh, and York in Kitsilano. And of course Linton became the mainstay there for many, many, many years. And of course people came to hear him and sit in with him and, and uh, just chat with him because he was, uh, he was uh, virtual history of the music. And uh, he also worked at a place called the Three Greenhorns, which was in the West End. And that was a very fine club as well. And he had a little trio down there with um, uh, Stu Losby, a wonderful saxophone player uh, originally from Montreal, and uh, my good friend Don Fraser on drums. And they had a regular gig at the uh, Three Greenhorns as well. Anyway, we're going to hear an album, and it's a rare item, and it's called Garner Plays Garner. And these are all his own compositions. And this album was recorded for the Enrica label uh, in New York City in 1959. And this is before he even moved to, uh, to, to uh, Canada. And he had an opportunity to do this album. And he picked Al Hall, a very fine bass player, and a wonderful brush master, Jimmy Crawford, on drums. And we're going to hear a few tunes from this uh, rare album. And as I mentioned before, these are all compositions by Linton Garner. So uh, I'll let you know the titles after we hear the tunes. So here we go as a tribute to the wonderful Mr. Garner.
Well, that was a little taste of wonderful piano player who lived here in Vancouver. Of course, was a major part of uh, the city's jazz and music scene. Linton Garner, who was born today, March the 25th, 1915, in Thomasville, North Carolina. There were six Garner children, and uh, Linton was the uh, eldest. And, of course, uh, brother Earl was the youngest and, uh, of course, Earl went on to great fame and some fortune as well as being one of the most successful and individual jazz pianists. And Linton had a long and wonderful career, of course, and uh, he played in a, a totally different style. But this is a wonderful album. It didn't get much press, unfortunately, at the time, but um, 
it uh, it was quite uh, a nice statement from Linton Garner. It was recorded in New York in 1959 and featured Al Hall on bass and the great Jimmy Crawford on drums. And um, we heard five tunes from this album. It's called Garner Plays Garner, and it came out on the Enrica label. Pretty uh, obscure um, label, even at the time. And the tunes, uh, the first one is called Dexterity, and uh, there's no relation between that and a Charlie Parker tune of the same title. Um, tune number two was the ballad. It's called Fancy Loving You. And then tune number three was called To My Liking. Tune number four was entitled simply Easily. And tune number five was Garner Come Lately. Linton Garner, wonderful musician, and of course, I valued his friendship, and I valued the fact that uh, he considered me his friend as well, and uh, I miss him to this day. Linton Garner. You are listening to The Jazz Show on CITR FM 101.9. My name's Gavin Walker, and we're also... On the web, www.citr.ca for live streaming. And we're going to take you back to Birdland. Legendary session that took place there with Charlie Parker. March the 31st, 19. 51. And this um, is an all-star band. Many people said, well, Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie, they recorded a lot in the, in the mid-40s, but they didn't record um, too much together later on. Well, of course, they, we have the 1953 Toronto Massey Hall concert, which was uh, one of the last meetings of the founders of, of modern jazz. But um, there were get-togethers, and of course uh, a very fine group of uh, recordings from 1950 that Norman Grants did with Dizzy and Bird and Thelonious Monk at the piano. Um, and there were other uh, times when they did get together. Uh, they loved playing together, of course, and uh, they loved one another musically and, and socially. And uh, Charlie Parker and Dizzy are on this legendary recording, along with Bud Powell on piano, of course, who was as important to the piano as Charlie Parker was to the saxophone and Dizzy Gillespie was to the trumpet. On bass is Tommy Potter, a reliable bass player that played with all the modern musicians, and the great Roy Haynes on drums. And we're going to hear some tunes from this uh, legendary summit meeting at Birdland. And we're going to begin with uh, Blue and Boogie. It's a co-composition, well, it's actually a Dizzy Gillespie composition. And the second piece of music is a co-composition of Bird and Diz and called Anthropology. And then we're going to hear a version of Round Midnight by Thelonious Monk. And uh, the final tune we're going to hear in this set is uh, one of Dizzy Gillespie's, or if not Dizzy Gillespie's most famous composition, A Night in Tunisia. Mm-hmm. 
So here then, Birdland, March 31st, 1951. Lizzie Gillespie and Charlie Parker and Bud Powell and company together. And those are the gentlemen that are here up until this coming Wednesday. We'd love for you to come by and dig Dizzy and Bird and Bud Powell. As I said before, three of the greatest gentlemen of modern music. What will we do first? You say you will. That was made with uh, Dexter, wasn't it, years ago? Here it is, Blue and Boogie. Thank you. 
what memories that brings back. Brings back a lot of memories. I don't know whether you remember 1945, but when Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker and Bud Powell all on 52nd Street. Here's Anthropology.
I, I just a little while ago, while the bars were playing, were saying I was standing at the bar. I was talking to Terry Gibbs. He said to me, just like I've been saying to you for the past few days, it never in life again probably will happen where you can get three great gentlemen of modern music, guys like Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, and Bud Powell, Roy Haynes, and uh, Tommy Potter all together in one group. And don't forget, make it here at Birdland, the Jazz Corner of the World, Broadway, 52nd Street, dollar admission. How can you go wrong? Right now, ladies and gentlemen, a thing that uh, was originally written by the high priest of Bob, Thelonious Monk, as done by Vern, Dizzy, the fellas, round about midnight.
Round about midnight, and I remember the year. I remember years ago when uh, Dizzy was playing it with his big band. I think at the Spotlight on 52nd Street. Billy Holiday used to come and he used to sit at the back of the bar. He used to say, "One of these days, I'm gonna sing around about midnight." Never happened, but maybe one of these, one of these days it will. What we got to do, Bert? We got to get a hold of Tunisia. A night in Tunisia. A great big hand for a night in Tunisia by a wonderful organization.
Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you listening in this morning have had a lot of fun listening to Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, Bud Powell, Tommy Potter, Roy Haynes. I hope you enjoyed George Kirby, our impressionist here at Birdland. And I hope, too, that you enjoy the exciting... Yes, of course, the uh, MC at Birdland was one of the big supporters of modern jazz. And that plummy voice belonged to Symphony Sid. And uh, he uh, introduced the tunes and all that kind of stuff. But the most important thing was the music and the getting together of this um, summit meeting of all the movers and shakers of modern jazz. Charlie Parker on alto saxophone, Dizzy Gillespie on trumpet, Bud Powell at the piano, Tommy Potter on bass, and Roy Haynes on drums. And we heard four tunes. The um, Dizzy Gillespie opus opened the, tune, opened the set, Blue and Boogie, and then uh, a co-composition by Parker and Gillespie called Anthropology. And then we heard a version of Thelonious Monk's Round Midnight. And the final tune, of course, was Dizzy Gillespie's composition, A Night in Tunisia. And we heard a little bit of the band's theme, of course, which was Jumpin' with Symphony Sid. Yeah. Anyway, that was the uh, summit meeting at Birdland, March the 31st, 1951. It only cost a dollar to get in and hear these musicians um, playing at their very best. Quite amazing. New York City. Mm Mm-hmm. You are listening to The Jazz Show on CITR. My name's Gavin Walker, and of course we're on live streaming, which is CITR.ca. We're going to take you to Japan now, to Tokyo, and the Sankey Hall in Tokyo, and listen to the Julian Cannonball Adderley Sextet. One of the finest bands that uh, Cannonball Adderley ever put together. And, of course, um, Cannonball Adderley was basically um, influenced a lot by Charlie Parker and some of the earlier exponents of the alto saxophone. And, of course, he created his own individual style, one of the most formidable musicians in jazz and a great band leader, and a great communicator. He really was. And uh, his kind of um, personality is very much missed in today's jazz scene, which seems so kind of cold in some ways and academic. Um, Cannonball exuded warmth, intelligence, and um, most of all was a representative of real jazz. And He performs here with his brother Nat on cornet and the incredible multi-instrumentalist Yusef Latif, who plays the flute and the tenor saxophone on these selections we're going to hear. Joe Zavano on piano, Sam Jones on bass, and Louis Hayes on drums. And we're going to open the set with uh, Autumn Leaves, the band's version of that great standard, even though it's a little bit out of season now. Um, and we're going to follow that with an incredible composition written by Yusef Latif. 
and uh, it was one of the band's real specialties. And um, everybody smokes on that tune. And it's dedicated to a, a friend of everybody in the band. Uh, Lee Weaver was a character in New York City and a hipster and all that kind of stuff. And um, was friends with everybody in the band. And so it was dedicated to Lee Weaver. And the tune was called The Weaver and written by Youssef Latif. So here then, Julian Cannonball Adderley and his sextet in Tokyo. This one is called Autumn Leaves. Thank you. 
this one is based on the blues and it's got something else besides that. You see, this one is dedicated to a friend of ours in New York who is a dear friend to everyone in the band, kind of a jive cat but a beautiful cat. His name is Weaver, Lee Weaver. So the tune sounds something like Lee Weaver. It's soulful, it's me. It's called The Weaver by Yusuf Latif.
Dev have come a long way. <laughs> We're going to play another of our late compositions. This one written by my brother Nat Adderley, one of his more popular ones. It's called the Jive Samba.
Mm-hmm. Cannonball Adderley and his sextet recorded in Sankey Hall in Tokyo back in 1963 in July. And, of course, Julian Cannonball Adderley leading the band on alto saxophone. Brother Nat on cornet. Yusef Latif heard on flute and tenor saxophone. Joe Zavinul on piano, Sam Jones on bass, and Louis Hayes on drums. And we heard three lengthy tunes from this uh, concert. And we opened with um, Autumn Leaves, which was an arrangement by Cannonball Adderley. And uh, then we heard an original composition by Youssef Latif. And uh, everyone just played so incredible um, solos on this piece of music dedicated to a gentleman named Lee Weaver, and the tune was called The Weaver, and uh, the final tune was uh, one of Nat Adderley's uh, big hit tunes for the band, and that was called The Jive Samba, and of course it was very obvious the uh, Japanese audiences in those days were usually very reserved, but um, this band really um, brought out um, applause and cheers and all that kind of stuff. And uh, that's, the way, that's the way they were. They really communicated with their music. And one of the great bands in jazz history, the Cannonball Adderley Sextet. All of his bands were, were incredible. But this particular sextet was something really special. So ending our show this evening on a high note... And I uh, hope you can join us um, on April Fool's Day. That's when we're going to be back, April 1st. And we have a very special jazz feature for that day that was actually recorded on April 1st and featured um, features a gentleman that were, uh, was presented earlier on our show. And it was his very first album under his own name. And I'm talking about the incredible multi-instrumentalist Eric Dolphy. He recorded an album for Prestige Records called Outward Bound, actually New Jazz Records, which was a division of Prestige. And he recorded Outward Bound on April 1st, 1960, and it was one of the more incredible musical debuts that uh, the jazz world had ever heard. That's going to be our jazz feature next week. Hope you can join us. My name's Gavin Walker, and of course, uh, on behalf of uh, The Jazz Show and CITR, I'd like to uh, wish you a very uh, good week, and I hope you have a ball. We'll see you in seven days' time. Take care. Bye for now. Thank you.
Thank you.